verse 21 today. This is the story of the Canaanite woman who approached Jesus uh, regarding her uh, demonized daughter uh, looking for healing. And there, there really are so many things that I could pull out of this passage. Not by a long shot am I going to do this passage justice this morning. Um, and there's a lot of theology packed into this passage. But where I felt led in prayer uh, was to look at this passage pastorally and to see how it is that Jesus interacts with us as, as we see how he interacts with this woman. And there's no doubt some of my leading for that came because Jim and uh, Steve and I were in um, Atlanta. Uh, you'll be hearing more about that in time, but just an amazing prayer gathering with some leaders around the world. And there's no doubt that some of what we heard uh, the Lord speaking to us in those gatherings informed how I looked at this passage this week. So I'm praying that the Lord ministers to us through it. So we're going to read the passage in Matthew 15, beginning in verse 21. It says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, let me just say something about that. These are two uh, um, cities in Scripture that are associated with judgment. And so keep that as the background of, of what we're about to read. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him. Let me stop you here again. Canaanite. Um, do you remember the Canaanites in, in the Old Testament? The, in many ways, you know, the Canaanites are like the arch enemies of Israel. Um, long history of wars and violence um, and harassment by the Canaanite people and God's people overcoming them and being oppressed by the Canaanites is back and forth. Uh, it never ended. So this woman, Scripture is making sure to point this out. Matthew's pointing this out so we know um, this about her, that this is her lineage. So a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering, suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request, your request is granted. And her daughter was healed that very hour. This is arguably one of the strangest stories we have about Jesus in all of the Gospels. But I'm going to tell you this morning, if, if life is generally going well for you, there's going to be something about this passage that unsettles you and provokes you. It's going to be like, does Jesus really say things like that? Does he really talk to people like that? But here's, but here's the good news. If you're hurting this morning, if you're feeling sad, if you're in an impossible situation, you're going to see that this passage is filled with hope, you know, for you and your circumstance. And so I'm not going to be surprised this morning if this story hits us differently, depending on where we are, you know, the state of our emotions as we came in this week. So my main point is that Jesus provokes us to boundary-breaking faith. Jesus provokes us to boundary-breaking faith. I struggled over knowing what verb to use for what Jesus is doing in this passage, um, and I chose the word provoke, which has a connotation almost like insult, but that's almost kind of what Jesus does to this woman in this passage. But I think we're going to see that there is reason for it. 
And I just want to say, you know, if you've wondered in your Christian life, like, would Jesus do that? Would he really provoke something out of me? Um, the answer is definitely yes. I mean, Jesus is full of comfort. He's all the things we say and sing about him. You know, he's merciful and kind. But there is this side of Jesus, too, you know, that is willing to challenge out of love and to bring us to the place where we can receive everything that he has for us. Hey, just a word about demonization. Just a brief word about demonization before we get into the passage. Um, it's like a public service announcement. Um, you know, this passage, we're using the New International Version. It uses the term demon possession. It's really a poor translation. We've said this before of the word. Uh, the word really would be better rendered demonization, just meaning under the influence of a demon. And of course, there are varying degrees of this. You know, someone might be slightly demonized, or they might be demonized to the point where it looks like the demon has all but taken over the will of the person. It seems here that the demon has made this individual sick. Now listen, I realize in Western culture, we're not used to talking about this, um, but in Jesus's worldview and the way he sees ministry in the world, um, demons are not uncommon, they're common. And one reason I want to point that out is because we really have to get honest about the reality of spiritual warfare in our lives and the lives of people that we love. What does Paul say in Ephesians? Your enemy is not flesh and blood, right? If it has flesh and blood, it's not your enemy, right? There are unseen things that are often at work, and we got to talk about it because otherwise there's like a stigma that begins to surround our journeys with deliverance. Um, you know, we begin to hush and whisper about deliverance. Like, oh, they have a demon. Have you heard they have a demon? You know? No need to be like that. This is just reality. Let me stand in front of you as one of your pastors and tell you that my journey in discipleship has included deliverance from spirits. It did. I can't deny that. That wasn't all of my discipleship, but it was part of it. And I have to tell you this. Increasingly, uh, the people who I really trust in ministry are people who are real with their own deliverance stories. You know? People who want to pretend that they're too good for this that, you know, that's just flesh, the devil doesn't mess with me, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I trust less. And, and I, I, I'm saying that because I hope it frees you up, you know, and, and brings you some encouragement that not everything you struggle against is you. Listen, that's grace in your discipleship journey. It really is. That not everything you struggle against is you. You know, that we have unseen, um, you know, powers that, that impact us, all right? But that we have authority and victory over in Jesus. All right, the first thing I want to say about this passage is that clearly, whatever this passage is, it is not about Jesus rejecting this woman in any way. How do I know that? First of all, Jesus had gone into a Gentile area to do ministry, right? There's the Jews, God's chosen covenant people, everybody else is Gentiles, probably, unless you have Jewish lineage, I know some of you do, probably most of us are Gentiles in this room. And Jesus had gone into a Gentile region, and there is something prophetic in that in Jesus' ministry about the eventual inclusion of the Gentiles, right, in God's plan of salvation. God is not just saving the Jews. You know, this comes out in Jesus in the New Testament, not only saving the Jews, but saving the whole world, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Um, this is a healing story, right, of a Canaanite woman. Look, we just read the whole story. You know what happens at the end. She gets healed, right? I mean, her daughter gets healed. Her request gets granted. 
and she's a Canaanite. So that's also prophetic inclusion. There's something special happening here that's not rejection. And what's obvious to me in the passage is that it's not Jesus who wants to send this woman away. It's the disciples, right? They're the ones who say in Matthew 15, 23, in the second half of the verse, send her away. That's, that's their solution to this very messy situation of this woman kind of following them crying out to, to Jesus for help and in her persistence, not leaving them alone. And I just want to point this out because I still think too often among Christians in the church, this is the best we can give people in messy situations, right? Send them away. Well, that, we prayed a prayer and nothing happened. Send them away, right? And if we don't do it actually, we do it in the way we relate to them. You know, we become quieter around them. Messy situations that don't have neat, tidy endings all the time. You know, we're not always sure what to do with that. They challenge us, you know, emotionally and theologically. And in the midst of that, we're not always sure, you know, how to respond to people. Sometimes I share with people a story about how God intervened and touched someone's life. And the first question they ask me, I mean, there's not a praise the Lord. <laughs> there's, not, there's not a, that was amazing what God did. Instead, what they want to know is, well, did it have a good ending all the way at the end? Like, is it still, you know, going well? You know? It makes me want to hit them upside the head, you know? Because, listen, if, if all we have room for, you know, if all we have room for in our Christian experience are tidy, neat stories where everything is good in the end immediately, um, you know, we're not, not only are we not being honest with how God works in the world, but we're not being honest with the Gospels. And this is a messy story. It just is. And she's coming to Jesus in this raw place. So I want to talk about the provocation of Jesus and how he prods this woman onto a place of deeper faith. First of all, Jesus provokes us. I'm seeing in how he treats her, uh, sometimes how he treats us in the place of our pain. Jesus provokes us to get in touch with our grief and our need. Here's how Jesus does this with this woman. At first, he remains silent. Isn't that stunning? She comes with all of this pain and all of this suffering, and Jesus' response immediately, at least initially, is to remain silent, which actually is the testimony of Scripture in more than one place, in both the Old Testaments and the New Testaments. How many of you have experienced this before, that in your pain, God sounded very silent? Have you experienced that before? It's like, where is the voice of the Lord? You know, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my suffering. This is a common experience. It's one of the reasons why I love the authenticity of of Scripture. Listen, if the Bible, if the Gospels were propaganda, this story about Jesus wouldn't be in there. You understand that, right? I mean, this wouldn't be included if it were just trying, you know, to give us a neat, easy story. You know, instead, the Bible in both the Old and New Testaments is so honest with human suffering and pain and the emotions that are connected to it, and how God responds to it. So Jesus remains silent. It says in 23, verse 23, that Jesus did not answer a word. Here's what I think some of what is happening. The delay in Jesus speaking to her, this is how I imagine this story, I think it intensifies her crying out. You know, the emotion, who knows how long her daughter had been sick, the emotion that is bottled up inside of her, is bubbling to the surface, and Jesus is letting it happen. Why? One of our mentors said to us this last week, and it was so clarifying to me, I have it on the screen because we're going to say it together, that sadness is a holy emotion, and need is a holy state to be in. 
Can you say that with me? Sadness is a holy emotion. Need is a holy state to be in. Do you hear that? Sadness is a holy emotion. This has been something I've really grown in in the last year, and I'm sure the Lord is taking me deeper in it. But the Tuesday before I left for Georgia, uh, Chelsea and I had to do something family-related that just honestly was not fun. And I'm sure you've had experiences like that, you know, in your family. And this almost for me was a testimony to myself of what sanctification has looked like in me in the last year because we got into the car and I didn't feel angry and I didn't feel hopeless. That's, that's where I've normally gone in my pain is either anger or hopelessness. Instead, what I felt was really, really sad. And this is how I could tell I had grown at least some was I was able to state it to my wife, <laughs> right? You know, many of us can't state it. You know, how many times have you seen people all bottled up in anger and they can't even find words, you know, for for what's there? Or they're just feeling hopeless and spiraling in anxiety. But I was able to just tell Chelsea, and I'm sure I got to grow in this, but I was just able to tell her, I just feel really sad because she wants to be with me in that, you know? we There are people around you that want to be with you in that, you know? Um, that want to just sit with you in the sadness. And this is a huge change in my life, friends, just as a testimony that I am less afraid to be sad than I've ever been in my life. You know, because when the Lord brings you through those times, sadness is not all of a sudden this emotion that you immediately have to find a way to get rid of. You know, your capacity to sit in it and be okay, you know, and even to discern God's presence in the midst of it, it grows. And then this, that need is a holy state to be in. You know this, right? That spiritual maturity in the Christian faith does not look like needlessness, right? We go deeper the more we're in touch with our need and how serious our need is. Jesus is allowing this woman to reach this point where it's like, Jesus, I need something to happen here that's beyond me or we are in a really, really bad place. And Jesus, listen, he loves us, but he will let that stuff stir up in us. You know, he will let us sit in sadness and in need and those things are not always uh, bad. You know, as a matter of fact, they prepare us to encounter God. Jim and I were in Spain um, you know, in December. And I would say the church that we were ministering in, there was a lot of sadness and a lot of need. You know, a lot of people in the church had prodigal children who weren't following the Lord. The church had just been through a split. They had kicked out their pastor. I mean, the church was in a painful place in a culture where they're increasingly marginalized. And a lot of what we did was minister to sadness and need. And guess what? Jesus loves to show up in those places. You know, he loves it. A church that is honest with sadness and need is a church where Jesus will meet, you know? And that's what he did while we were in Spain. Secondly, Jesus provokes us, why? To cultivate persistence in us. Like I said, I just imagine her getting louder and louder and crying out more and more as she follows. Jesus' answer to her is interesting, and there's tons of theology packed into this I'm not going to be able to unpack for you. But he says in 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, Now, Jesus knew what his mission was. Now, the cross, and Jesus knew this, would provide for the salvation of the whole world. But in this phase of the inbreaking of God's kingdom, Jesus was anointed to go to his own people, you know, the Jews. In the book of Acts, which follows Jesus' burial and ascension, we see uh, this mission broaden, and it ends up including the whole world. But right now, Jesus is sure of what his mission is. And it's to minister not to the Canaanites, 
but it's to minister to the people of Israel. And so Jesus states this to her. It's, it's a way that he is like putting up some kind of blockade or barrier that he's, he's provoking her to try to push through. I think that's what's happening here. He's cultivating her persistence, and it doesn't deter her. This woman's amazing. It doesn't det- she will not take no for an answer. There's something very holy about this. And she keeps pressing in. She ends up on her knees. And notice the terms that she uses for Jesus. Lord twice, son of David once. You know, this, she's humbling herself before the Lord. And by the way, to call Jesus the son of David is to recognize his kingly role. And she's in a group that had often been subdued by the Israelites. I mean, she is going low to call him these things, but she won't be deterred. And I just see her persistence building in this. Next, Jesus provokes us to the point where desperation outweighs offense. I think this is so powerful for the operation of faith in our lives. Jesus says what is probably the hardest part of this passage. He says to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. He's talking about Israel, the children, Dogs, the Gentiles. Now, it's very interesting to see what scholars and commentators try to do with this passage. There's some, the route they take is to try to lessen the blow of Jesus' words. This just cracks me up. Obviously, I don't agree with these commentators because I'm laughing. But they say, they say that Jesus here is talking about puppies. Like it's a word, like it's not for the puppies, it's for the children. But just, just think about that for a second. Does it help you? Is it any better that in this desperate situation, (laughs) Jesus calls her the pet of the household instead of the child of the household? Does it help at all? No. Um, I don't think there's any way getting around the force of this passage. Jesus is saying here, look, I didn't come for you. That's basically what he's saying, at least not right now, you know? And it's not right for me to take what God has given to me and give it to you when I'm supposed to give it you know, to the people of Israel. That's my mission. And I think her answer, just in the midst of her brokenness, in the midst of her pain, I think quick as a flash, she answered, no, Lord, it's like she's pushing back, daring to push back against Jesus. She says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, here's what, I'm going to say more about this, but here's what I find amazing about this portion of the passage, is that her desperation for God to move outweighed the offense. You see this? This is important because our tendency is to get offended in our pain, right? Somewhere along the line, we get offended at another person. We get offended at God, you know, himself. Offense takes up root in our hearts. One of my friends this last week, I thought this was so powerful. I think he got it from somewhere else. But even if we aren't personally offended, if we're walking with someone in pain or with a group of people in pain, our tendency is to adopt their offense as our own, right? So we are now offended at the same things they're offended at, right? And so I think Jesus here is surfacing that tendency, you know, in the human heart. It's like, what's going to be more important to you? Your rights? You know, your desire to not be offended? Is that what this is about? You know, are you just trying to get out of the pain so that the offense can be lifted? Or are you willing to push through the offense to the presence of Jesus himself. Say, Lord, I need what you have to give. Um, The closest story I could think of about this uh, is a story from uh, day camp, actually. And it was one one of the more difficult students we've ever worked with in our program, unusually difficult. 
And uh, one reason this case was difficult was because there had been a lot of domestic violence in his home. Um, He had seen a man in his home often abuse a woman in his home. And so this created in him some violent tendencies. And here's what we noticed at day camp, and Jamira knows who I'm talking about, but we noticed that he responded really well to female leadership, and we have some amazing female leaders in our ministry, very capable and competent, but he responded very poorly immediately to male leadership, you know, because he was sure that, that whoever that male in authority was was going to knock the snot out of him. You know, he was sure that that's what was going to happen. And we just decided as a leadership team that, that rather than always finding a female leader to work with him, that we needed to break through this, you know, because it wasn't healthy for his development, you know, in the future. And so one day he got upset about something, and, I mean, he got mad, really mad, unusually mad. Um, and, I mean, he was, you know, throwing things. We had to isolate him. You know, he's throwing things. We can't restrain, you know, kids in our program at all. So I just kept saying, you're going to clean it up. You're going to clean it up. I just kept saying. And, um, and then uh, he started to sometimes try to throw a punch. You know, I've worked with hundreds of kids. That, that may have been the first time I was actually hit on purpose by one, you know. Um, but he was just trying to get us, it was me and Devante, some of you know Devante, just trying to get us away from him, you know? Um, and so sometimes he was throwing a punch. I would just absorb it and step back, you know, for a little bit. And there was all this offense, right, that had built up inside of him from all of this legitimate pain, you know, and had caused him to want to push people away and all of these things. And then all of a sudden, I don't know how, if it was the spirit or I just noticed in the moment, but... Um, I saw an opening, and I just grabbed him and hugged him. And then he started to weep, you know, and the tears. I held him in my arms for a long time, you know, while he just wept and wept and wept in my arms. And I think we still have some problems, but that was a moment of breakthrough, you know, for him. You know, definitely pushing through the offense. See, this is some of what Jesus will do. He'll, he'll provoke the offense, you know. Provoke the offense so that eventually he can get to us to... Give us a bear hug, you know, but to get through the offense. I think that's sometimes what it looks like when Jesus is loving us. And by the way, he didn't think we were loving him up until that hug, you know. He thought we were his enemies. And sometimes it can feel that way with the Lord, can it? Like, come on, you know. Come on, Lord, how long, you know. But he's getting us to that place. Okay, the worship team could come forward. We're going to take communion here in a moment. Um, but this is some of the best stuff I'm going to say, and it's going to be short. I think, I think it's the best. And, um, and it's going to be short. And so if you, if you wrote down anything, write down this, you know, or put it in your phone or write it down. Um, if you put it in your phone, you know, if you need to send a text right now and you want to look spiritual doing it, now is the time, all right? So here we go. I just want to point out these three things here at the end. But this is, this is the sum of the story when Jesus provokes her to boundary-breaking faith. Listen, think about the boundaries in this woman's life just for a moment. She's a woman, right? We've talked many times in this gathering about the limitations of women in her culture. She's not even supposed to be talking to Jesus, right? Her desperation pushes through that boundary. Um, she's a Canaanite. You know, her ethnicity is supposed to limit her. And, and get, I find this, this is incredible, that Jesus' mission is actually one of the limitations that she faces, I only came for the house of Israel. 
you know? That's actually one of the limitations that she has to break through, you know? But Jesus, in this back-and-forth conversation, in the silence and the pushing and pulling, cultivates in her and pulls out of her this extraordinary faith that we're still talking about 2,000 years later. And it is a boundary-breaking faith. It is, it is a faith that does not recognize the boundaries that are there. It's phenomenal. You know what happens in her. So listen, there's a quality of her faith that's formed in the crucible of her pain that demands her share of the blessing. I love this. There's, a, there's this quality of her faith that demands her share in the blessing. Jim and I have a friend uh, in India, Stephen. I traveled to India with him. He was in Atlanta last week. And he stood up in front of us and he said, India is number two in the world's population. I'm praying that it will be number one in heaven. Listen, there's something beautiful about that. He's not saying anything bad about any other nation. He's saying India wants its share, right? He's saying my people want their share, you know, in the blessing. And, and listen, the way I'm talking about faith is non-religious. Do you hear it? It's not saying, it's not saying well, no, it's okay. I don't need anything. She's saying, no, I want my, listen, if there's crumbs under the table, I want that, you know? She's demanding her share from Jesus, and Jesus is pleased to give. Isn't that incredible? You ought to just feel confidence rising up in your soul for your family, for your kids. I want the share of the kingdom that belongs to our family. You know, I do. I'm not ashamed to say that. I want the share of the kingdom that belongs to Crestmont Alliance Church, right? Don't you? Don't you want it? For your community, for your school, I want the share of the kingdom that God has to give. Next, there's a quality of her faith formed in the crucible of her pain that makes what isn't supposed to happen happen. None of this is supposed to happen. It, isn't it crazy? Jesus, at, at the prompting of her faith, this is an amazing thing. At the prompting of her faith, he adjusts his mission for her. I mean, what is faith and what is praying that somehow in the mystery of God's sovereignty, he will let us enter into that kind of conversation with him and adjust the mission. And I know he knows beginning from end, I'm talking about mysteries right now, but it's like he adjusts the mission to meet her need, you know, because of the persistence of her faith. And then lastly, there's a quality of her faith formed in the crucible of pain. This is amazing. That fast forwards future blessing into the present. Fast forwards future blessing into the present. Listen, it was always God's plan to save the Gentiles. It was always. When Jesus says to her, I came to the lost sheep of Israel, he's saying, it's not time yet. You know, that's not my mission. It'll be Paul's mission, <laughs> you know? But he's saying, that's not my mission. But there's something about her persistence and her faith that actually brings a future blessing into her present circumstance. Isn't that amazing? Listen, friends, that is what prayer is. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are asking for things that we know will be true in that future reality to manifest here in the present. And what we see in this woman, although Jesus is kind of edgy in this passage, what we see ultimately is that he is welcoming this kind of faith. And he does in us as well. 